in our sermons here at Good Shepherd. We're currently studying the book of Malachi, and our second Bible reading this morning is Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do keep that page open, because we'll be referring to that Bible passage during the sermon. Why don't we bow our heads and pray for God's Spirit to do his life-transforming work through his word. The writer of Psalm 43 cries out to God, Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Father, we pray that you would indeed send forth your light and your truth among us this morning. Please would they bring us nearer to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Just over a month ago, on Sunday, May the 22nd, the Southern Baptist Convention published a shocking report, a report into the handling of sexual abuse cases in its churches. The Southern Baptist Convention, or SBC, is the largest Protestant denomination in America with 14 million members. Writing in Christianity Today, former SBC member Russell Moore said, the abuse investigation has uncovered more evil than even I imagined. According to the report, for decades, the SBC's leaders refused to take action when survivors gave them information about sexually abusive staff members in SBC churches. They refused to delist churches with sexually abusive pastors. They didn't warn churches that unknowingly hired sexually abusive pastors or staff members. The reason why those leaders didn't take action was because they didn't want the denomination to be legally liable for abuse cases in its churches. It was a sickeningly defensive approach 
for those leaders to take. It was inexcusable and sinful and wrong. Their failure to take action left church members at risk of abuse by known abusers. Their failure to listen to survivors added to the trauma experienced by those survivors. And ultimately, when the SBC's failure to take action was publicly exposed, Christianity was discredited in the eyes of many non-Christians. Jesus' followers are meant to be the light of the world, but instead the Southern Baptist Convention, a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching denomination, is currently better known for spiritual darkness than for light. And it raises the question, what does God think when Christian leaders cause such great harm? What does God think? The answer, as we'll see from today's passage, is that God thinks they deserve to be tossed on the dung heap. God thinks they deserve to be smeared with animal dung and then thrown on the trash pile. Today's passage reveals God's anger towards spiritual leaders who pick and choose from his word to serve their own interests instead of carefully applying all of God's word to serve his interests. In this passage, we see a side of God's character that we don't often focus on, his righteous anger. And as we look at what stirs up his anger in this passage, we'll find important implications, not only for Christian leaders, but for all of us. There are two parts to the rest of this sermon, and the heading for the first part is God's horrifying reprimand. God's horrifying reprimand. Last Sunday, we saw that in Malachi's day, the priests who served at the temple in Jerusalem were allowing the people to bring blind, injured, and diseased animals as their offerings to God. But that was against God's law. And so the sacrificial system just didn't work in those circumstances. God had set up the sacrificial system so that when his people sinned, they would be able to restore their good relationship with him. When the sinner offered God an unblemished animal sacrifice at the temple, God's condemnation would be diverted from the sinner onto the animal being sacrificed. Sin against God deserves death, but under the sacrificial system, animals died in the place of people. With our New Testament spectacles on, we can see that God was using the sacrificial system to prepare the world for the supreme sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own son, the Lord Jesus. The blood of animals could never pay the price for human sin, but the precious blood of Jesus can pay that price so that we don't have to pay it ourselves. The Old Testament sacrificial system prepared the way for the cross of Christ, and that gave it great value. By trusting in the sacrificial system, the people were effectively trusting in Christ. But the priests in Malachi's day were treating the sacrificial system with contempt. Under their stewardship, it had become useless. It no longer connected people with God's forgiveness and acceptance. In brief, the priests had put a barrier between the people and God. God loves 
the people he's made. He wants to be in a good relationship with us. And that explains the horrifying reprimand in verses 2 and 3. God says in verse 2 that he will curse the priests. He says, I will curse your blessings. In other words, the things they look to as blessings in their lives will be blighted and ruined. Alternatively, verse 2 could mean that when those priests declare the priestly blessing, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you, God will turn that blessing into a curse. Either interpretation of verse 2 makes for chilling hearing for the priests. Then in verse 3, God says, I will rebuke your descendants. A more literal translation would be, I will rebuke your seed. And that might refer to barrenness in the home or crop failure in the fields or both. One of the differences between Old Testament times and New Testament times is that God used material blessings or curses to express his approval or judgment. In New Testament times, that kind of divine intervention isn't entirely absent, but it's not God's pattern in the way that it was. Then moving on to the second half of verse 3, God expresses his anger with these standout words. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. The offal from your festival sacrifices. One of the nastier jobs that the priests had to do was to remove an animal's offal, its intestines, to be taken away and burnt on a big heap outside the city. What do you find inside an animal's intestines? You find dung on its way to being excreted. Spreadable dung. It's the contents of the intestines that are in view in verse 3, which is why many English Bible translations have the word dung instead of offal. This is what life will be like for you, God is saying to the priests, you're going to have the dung smeared on the face experience. You're going to have the carted off to the dung heap experience. God isn't necessarily speaking literally. He often uses picture language in the Bible. In verse 9, he speaks about the priests being despised and humiliated before all the people. And the dung verse, verse 3, may be a metaphorical way of talking about how awful that humiliation will be for them. Another thing to say here is that God isn't condemning the priests eternally. He's not saying you cannot be saved. There's hope in verse 2 where God says, if you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honour my name, I will do such and such. The implication is that if they do listen and if they do set their hearts to honour his name, they can still receive the eternal blessings of friendship and fellowship with God. But looking at verse 9, it seems their reputation is already ruined. Reputation being different from salvation. Verse 9 says, I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. Their reputation is like the reputation of someone who goes around smeared with dung. 
Well, so far, this passage might seem totally disconnected from our own period of salvation history. Our salvation doesn't depend on the Levitical priests who served at the temple in Jerusalem. And so we might find it difficult to get a handle on just how sinful those priests were. But if you look at verse 9, you'll find a summary of their sin that makes it sound very up-to-date. At the end of verse 9, God says to the priests, You have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. They've cherry-picked from God's law to suit themselves. Yes to this, no to that. Yes to this, no to that. That kind of self-serving, picking and choosing from God's law didn't stop in the 5th century BC. It's still going on today. At the start of the sermon, I mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention, whose leaders for decades refused to delist churches known to have sexually abusive staff members. In 2009, a sexual abuse survivor named Debbie Vasquez pointed out to the SBC's leaders that they did delist churches that took an unbiblical approach to homosexuality. And so she asked, why wouldn't they similarly delist churches taking an unbiblical approach to sexual abuse. She made an excellent case. She made a Malachi chapter 2 verse 9 case. They were showing partiality in matters of the law, taking the bits they wanted, rejecting the bits that didn't suit them. But her appeal fell on deaf ears back in 2009. The SBC's leaders showed an outrageous partiality in matters of the law. And sad to say, that's not the only example from recent decades of Christian leaders showing partiality in matters of the law, failing to uphold parts of God's word that they found inconvenient. How should we think about that kind of Christian leader in light of these verses from Malachi chapter 2? As we've already seen, the point isn't that they can't be saved. Through God's mercy, they can be saved. On the cross, it is as if Jesus was smeared with dung because he bore other people's sins, sins as vile as covering up sexual abuse. On the cross, it's as if Jesus was smeared with dung in God's sight so that we could be pure and remain in fellowship with our pure God forever. And that extraordinary salvation, which we were singing about earlier, he welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. That extraordinary salvation was already planned by God in Malachi's day. It was already accessible through the sacrificial system that connected Old Testament people with the future sacrifice of Christ. So the point here isn't that Christian leaders who sin as badly as those leaders I was talking about earlier can't be saved. But today's passage, as I've said, doesn't major on salvation. It majors on reputation. God says at the start of verse 9, I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. That's a verse about reputation. The Bible takes a close interest in reputation. 
and verse 9 shows us what kind of reputation fallen Christian leaders should have. It shows us the lasting reputation they should have when serious sin has been exposed. It's a, a message we need to hear because of the danger of fallen Christian leaders staging a comeback. I think of one pastor in Florida forced to resign from his megachurch after serious sin in his life was exposed. He was rightly declared unfit for ministry by his denomination. But four years later, he was leading a new non-denominational church elsewhere in Florida. He staged a comeback. And there was a megachurch pastor in Seattle who was forced to resign after years of bullying and misuse of church funds for his own benefit, among other things. Eighteen months later, he was in charge of a new church in Arizona. Malachi chapter 2 tells us we should not feel good about those comeback stories. When a Christian leader has been exposed as untrustworthy, that change in reputation should be permanent. There are other ways for them to earn a living. Today's passage should make us think very carefully about the moral reputation of our Christian leaders. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, God's humbling reasoning. God's humbling reasoning. We were thinking earlier about the priest's willingness to accept blemished sacrifices, which they should not have accepted. That was the big issue highlighted in last week's passage. And it's right for us to keep, up, keep that in mind as we read today's passage. But from verse 4 onwards, God widens his investigation. He looks beyond sacrificing alone to the priest's other duties and responsibilities. And what God says in those verses from verse 4 onwards shows us how greatly believers need spiritual leadership. It's a humbling message. We like to think we can gain spiritual maturity all by ourselves. So it's humbling to hear that believers need a layer of spiritual leadership above us if we want to grow and develop and become mature. But that's the message of these verses and parallel verses in the New Testament. As God reasons with the priests, explaining why he's so displeased with them, the importance of spiritual leadership becomes clear, becomes impossible to ignore. To begin with, God looks back to the origins of the priesthood. He speaks in verse 4 of his covenant with Levi. The tribe of Levi was one of Israel's 12 tribes. And God set it apart to be the priestly tribe. All the priests who served at the temple in Jerusalem came from that one tribe. Their work at the temple brought the priests closer to God than the other Israelites. God gave the priests life and peace, we're told in verse 5. In response to those generous gifts, God expected the priests to honor him. He says in verse 5, this called for reverence. And at first, the priests did live up to their calling. Verses 5 and 6 sound like they're talking about one particular priest, but the Bible often toggles between the plural and the representative singular. So I think many past priests are in view in these verses. I'll start reading from halfway through verse 5. 
This called for reverence, and he revered me, and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. That was how God wanted things to be. That was what priests were supposed to do. Their job was bigger than simply overseeing the sacrificial system. Verse 7 is a job description verse for priests. It says, For the lips of a priests of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. Then in the next verse, we find out what happens when the priests don't put that job description into action. In verse 8, God says to the priests of Malachi's time, you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. When we put all of that together, we can see how greatly people need trustworthy, competent spiritual leaders. When the priests are doing their job properly, they give the people an example to follow and the instruction they need. When the priests aren't doing their job properly, the people stumble. They're no longer turned from sin. They don't experience the life and peace that God lovingly desires them to have. As we see the great influence of these priests, their make or break influence, we're seeing one of the inadequacies of the Old Covenant. It was utterly dependent on human priests doing their job properly. In the words of verse 7, the priest was the messenger of the Lord Almighty. And so whenever a bad generation of priests came along, God's message was corrupted and God's people were led astray. But later in the book of Malachi, Malachi looks forward to a day when one great messenger will come. Malachi 3 verse 1 says, Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger whom you desire will come. It's a prophecy. And it was fulfilled when Jesus came to the temple in Jerusalem some 500 years after those words were spoken. Malachi 3 verse 1. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger whom you desire will come. Jesus served as a perfect priest. A priest we can rely on fully and finally. We're not dependent on imperfect human priests in the same way people under the old covenant were because we have Jesus. The desired messenger has come and he's left us well provided for as we wait for his return. He's given us his spirit who has written God's law onto our hearts. So our situation is different under the new covenant because of Jesus, hallelujah, and yet, and yet, in the New Testament, we find that spiritual leaders do still have great influence over God's people for good or ill, like the priests in Malachi chapter 2. There are New Testament passages that parallel this passage in Malachi. We heard one in our first Bible reading earlier in the service. According to those verses we heard from Ephesians 4, God has given his people leaders, his new covenant people, He's given his new covenant people leaders whose role is, quote, 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. If you meditate on those verses in Ephesians chapter 4, and other similar passages in the New Testament, you'll see your need for faithful Christian leadership. It's humbling, but it's something we must take on board. God has given his people leaders so that we'll gain the maturity of Christ himself instead of remaining immature, tossed about by the winds of fanciful doctrines and worthless schemes. To gain Christian maturity the New Testament teaches us you need faithful leadership. At community group last Wednesday, for some reason that I can't remember, we got talking about the movie My Cousin Vinny. It's a 1990s comedy about two young New Yorkers put on trial in rural Alabama for a murder they didn't commit. One of the New Yorkers, Bill Gambini, has a cousin, Vinny, who's just starting out as a lawyer in New York. So Vinny comes down from New York to Alabama to represent both Bill, his cousin, and Bill's friend Stan. But Vinny's inexperience and his New York City brashness quickly become horribly apparent and Stan decides to switch to a different lawyer, a public defender. Unfortunately it turns out that this public defender who can speak without trouble in normal conversation has an incredibly awkward stutter as soon as he has to speak in court. So Stan gives up on him and goes back to Vinny. Throughout that process we see Stan's desperate eagerness to secure good representation. He knows how much is at stake and he yearns, how he yearns for a good reliable lawyer. Christians should have something of that same yearning when it comes to the question of who will lead us spiritually. When we see throughout the whole Bible the significance of spiritual leadership, Christians should long for good and faithful leaders with a longing somewhat like Stan's longing for a solid lawyer in the movie My Cousin Vinny. That application has immediate relevance for the members of our congregation who are leaving New York City this summer and need to find a new church. That is not a decision to take lightly in view of today's passage which shows the impact for good or ill that spiritual leaders deliver. Like any guidance decision, choosing a church calls for the three takes, take heart, God is a guiding God. As you read his word and pray for his leading, you can trust him to lead you to the best church for you. Take heart. Next, take advice. It makes sense to ask other Bible reading and praying people for their input. In practice, it's often as you weigh up different pieces of advice that you've received that the best choice becomes clear. And lastly, take your time. There's no need to rush. There's no need to declare your allegiance to a new church immediately. Take your time. 
If necessary, you might want to visit several different churches, although I don't, I don't think visiting all the different options is essential. If you're praying and your Bible reading and your advice taking are all pointing in one direction, then you can simply keep attending that church. But again, there's no need to commit yourself to it in those early weeks. Listen to a number of Sunday sermons in person so you can take the spiritual temperature of the leaders of that church. In particular, pay close attention to the sermon applications. Do they spring undeniably from that week's Bible passage? Or do they seem to spring from the top of the preacher's head? And do they connect with your life so that you find yourself truly comforted by the gospel and truly challenged to live a life pleasing to God with his help? When we need to find a new church, Malachi chapter 2 should fill us with a burning desire to make the best choice in God's sight. What about Christians who are settled in their church, who are not looking to change their spiritual leaders? How should they apply these verses to their lives? Well, in light of this passage, those Christians should come to church expectantly, with great anticipation. Look at all the good things that come through trustworthy leaders through their example and teaching life and peace verse 5 truth verse 6 uprightness and turning from sin verse 6 knowledge and instruction and god's message for god's message for humanity verse 7 you cannot put a price on those things they're so precious they're transformative they turn a person from a caterpillar into a butterfly and faithful Christian leaders will deliver those things Sunday by Sunday as they oversee the choice of songs, the choice of Bible readings, the sacraments, and the reading and preaching of God's Word. Come to church expectantly. Perhaps a sermon application will hit you between the eyes in a good way. Perhaps a, a single verse in the congregational psalm reading will speak right into your very soul. Life transformation is something to get excited about. So come to church with a spring in your step, with open eyes and ears and heart. Lastly, our human need for trustworthy spiritual leaders should make us firm in action when action is required. When serious sin comes to light in the life of a Christian leader, don't be the person who downplays it and shrugs it off and fails to take action. You need leaders whose lives are in harmony with their teaching. The Christians around you need leaders whose lives are in harmony with their teaching. When a leader sins seriously, when they're caught taking money that isn't theirs to take, or when they're caught out in a deliberate, significant lie, or when they're caught in drunkenness, or they're found to have sinned sexually, or they've bullied people who they're supposed to be building up. When a leader sins seriously, please don't be the person who lets them get away with it. It's right and necessary for that Christian leader's reputation to be ruined. That might sound harsh to you, when I say it's right and necessary for that Christian leader's reputation to be ruined. It 
might sound harsh, but today's Bible passage is quite literally the dung-on-the-face Bible passage. There it is in verse 3. Verse 3 is a severe verse calling for severe application. A time may come in your life, I hope it never comes, but a time may come when you are in a position to take firm action against a seriously sinful Christian leader. Do it! Take action! As the great Bible commentator Matthew Henry said, nothing profanes the name of God more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to do honour to it. God gives us Christian leaders because we need them. And we need them to be faithful in their leadership with God's powerful help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us Jesus to serve as our great high priest. We thank you that he offered himself in our place as an atoning sacrifice. We praise you for his perfect faithfulness as your messenger. Lord God, we see from your word that to gain maturity in Christ, we need trustworthy leaders. Please guide us to those leaders throughout our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.